difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. In our last episode, we discussed the classic 1954 George Cukor version of A Star is Born, which is a remake of the 1937 film, which was remade again in 1976, and now has been remade again in 2018. In each case, the film was obviously redesigned for its specific era. A lot of the details stay the same, including the overall arc and the central relationship. But the details of performance and what it takes to be a star change with every decade, and so do the ideas of what it means to compromise yourself for fame. The 1954 version was reportedly influenced by the real-life marriage of Barbara Stanwyck to Frank Fay, a famous but troubled vaudevillian who slipped into obscurity as his wife rocketed to fame. The 2018 version seems equally inspired by the career of its female lead, Lady Gaga, who talks repeatedly about all the men who told her she'd never make it as a singer, given her face, and especially her nose. When her character, Allie, finds fandom anyway, she's immediately surrounded by men who want to remake her in a very specific pop star image, but she fights back. That plot goes in and out of focus, compared to her character's relationship with Bradley Cooper's singer-songwriter lead character, who latches onto Allie as a great and shining talent, boosts her to fame, then gets jealous and resentful as she becomes something he doesn't recognize. The 2018 version of A Star is Born deals more directly with viral fandom and the ways artists can now bypass gatekeepers if they get lucky and get the right people's attention. But it also seems timely in a Me Too era, when more and more people are paying attention to the ways men can stand in the way of female artists' careers or can boost them to fame, but possibly with selfish intentions. The 2018 version of the film arrives at a time when it's hard to look at this kind of film without hearing the conversation about who holds the keys to fame and what any relationship between men and women of different power levels can mean. It gives a familiar story a new dimension. Or does it just throw the older versions of the story into an interesting new light? We'll talk about it after this break. I always knew, like, you were going to do something that you'd be all right. It's the first time I'm worried about you. Can I ask you a personal question? Okay. Tell me something, girl. Do you write songs or anything? I don't sing my own songs. Why? I just don't feel comfortable. Why wouldn't you feel comfortable? Almost every single person has told me they liked the way I sounded, but that they didn't like the way I look. I think you're beautiful. Hey. What? I just want to take another look at you. In all the good times, I find myself longing for change. Here's what we're going to do. You come sing that song that I love. No, I can't do that. Here, come on, here we go. Look at me. All you gotta do is trust me. That's all you gotta do.
All right, guys. What did you think of the 2018 version of Star is Born? I've been struggling with it. Um, oh, good. I'm not the only one. Yeah, I'm seeing, <laughs> see, you know, and, and, and I think I like, some of liked it better after finally seeing the 54 version, but I've seen it again tomorrow, so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what all this talking it over, because my wife hasn't seen it yet, and, and uh, how it affect my viewing, but I, I loved the first hour. I thought mm-hmm. it was great, just thrilling piece of filmmaking. Uh, and like the way these two characters come together, the performances, the way it's shot, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot. Um, and then I just the second hour, the second half of this movie, it felt like it just kind of like it has to hit these notes. It's going to hit these notes. And I don't really feel like it grappled with the idea of substance abuse in a really well thought out way. And I, it felt like we were just kind of going from incident to incident. I mean, a lot of it works, but you know, it's, it's just not the assured uh, really connected piece of filmmaking that the, that the first hour of this movie is. Overall, I, I liked it. I will flat out say I knew when I saw it, I still hadn't finished the 54 version. I knew where it was going because I'd been told, uh, but I didn't know how it was going to get there. And I there were so many points during the first uh, hour where I wanted to walk out because I was loving it and I didn't want to <laughs> see where it was going. Yeah. I was like, I just, I want to have this experience. I want to mm-hmm. keep this experience and pretend that this is the rest of the film. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I walked out of this film like really angry and <laughs> that anger has been tempered uh, since, since then. But I, I kind of alluded to this in the first half of this episode, like the, the final scene of the movie where she's singing that I'll never love again song that he wrote so it's his words that she is singing and then it like flashes to like images of him again and it just like highlighted that this story about a female star is at its core a story about a fading male star you know and like that is interesting but I really disliked a lot of how this movie handled it but I also there's so much in this movie that I really really loved and like so coming away from it with that taste in my mouth just like made me really like I said angry that it kind of ruined all the stuff in that first hour that I liked compounded by the realization that the problems I have with it are seated in that first hour I don't think I'm alone in saying one of the standout if not the standout scene of this movie is that first time they sing shallow on stage together sure, and when he brings yeah it's an amazing scene I cried but thinking it over I realized like this is the moment that her career is inextricably tied to his. Like he writes the arrangement. He forces her to come on stage against her will. In the earlier Star is Born, there's like a little more of a divide between the two characters, the male and female stars careers. In this one, like they're a duo basically for the first part. And so then when she begins to eclipse him, there is this element of woundedness or whatever on his part, even if it's not explicit. And I think the movie is very careful to not show him being jealous of her. But because their careers have been linked in this moment, I think it's impossible to not come away with that perception. I think it's kind of possible to come away yeah. with it in the, in the sense like... It wasn't uh, possible for me. Yeah, I think there was a thing, though... Uh, let me respond to your point and then, and then tell you how, how I think about the, the movie. I think the film has this idea, this, these notions of authenticity, right? Mm, that's and a whole it, other thing that I like have a lot of problems oh, no, with. We've got a lot to say about that. But I think it is associating 
what he does with with the rock world with singer being a singer songwriter as being an authentic person but when you're going off and doing pop that is an inauthentic thing to be doing and i think he's wrapped up in that concern more i think than jealousy over her ascendance right but i think the movie is unclear on how he feels about that and how we are supposed to feel about it because like his signature song the opens time to let the old ways die like you know like there's there's a suggestion that he is fading out so that her brand of pop stardom can ascend and like casting lady gaga in that role who has this very specific career trajectory Mm -hmm. in terms of like pop music and how she plays with ideas of authenticity and persona like i feel like the movie doesn't know how it feels about authenticity which just makes the those moments where jackson like talks about you know it being real or whatever just like it makes me hate that character i really dislike the jackson main character i really just like throughout the film i mean i think i I think i don't think we're supposed to be on board with that i don't think we're supposed to be on board with his thoughts there yeah but but you're right the film is not clear how it's I mean, it's maybe it's a feature, not a bug, but but how we're supposed to feel like the fact that there's an online debate is like, are her pop songs good? Yeah. Question mark, question mark, question mark is is an interesting takeaway from this film. I think it's a great question. I I like the ambiguity there, and like in the same way, people went went nuts uh, tearing down La La Land because of this idea that Ryan Gosling's character was dismissive of like popular new music, and like, is he a snob or is he authentic? Like, is he is he right that this popular music this black man is making is inauthentic jazz and this music that he is making as a white man is real authentic jazz i think there's a a a partial ambiguity there and and part of it comes down to john legend is making great music and people love it Mm -hmm. and like ryan gosling's uh little club where a few people like his music is probably gonna burn out and die it's okay for you to not like that character and not like his opinions i think in this film it's okay for you to not like that character and like not like his opinions and not like his his judgmentalism and his his substance abuse he's a very compromised character now that said i like his music a lot more than i like hers but that's a personal taste thing and i think ultimately how you feel about their music and how you feel about the changes that she goes through and how she presents herself may make this a very different movie for different audiences i think that's pretty cool yeah i mean i and sorry scott i interrupted you Uh, i'm I'm sort of dominating no no (laughs) this is this is your this is so much your terrain so i'm happy you're a superstar i'm happy to see I, I mean, like, I don't, I don't hate this movie, I, I, like by any means. I, I think Lady Gaga is incredible in it. I think a lot of the songs are really good. I even think Bradley Cooper's performance is good, and I, like, you're right that like that is an interesting dilemma that it bakes into the Jackson character. Uh, just real quick, in terms of the whole authenticity debate, who the film does make a point to note stole his voice mm-hmm. <laughs> from his brother. So you know, read into that what you will. Uh, Re authenticity. Do you believe that though? Like when he says that, as much as I love that Sam Elliott character, you can't steal somebody else's. Like when he says it, he makes it sound like I should have been the famous one, and then you were the famous one because you wrote all these songs. Like he's talking about stealing his style. I think he's talking but- about his stealing his literal manner of speaking. Like like Bradley Cooper studied how Sam Elliott speaks and mirrored his vocal cadence off of it. It just it sounds it ends up coming off like uh like Ursula the Sea Witch and Little Mermaid. Like <laughs> you stole my voice and, and took it and you went and sung to a guy that I'm hot for. It's like. No, he, he. I mean, he became famous because he had talent. I mean, it's a it's a 
complicated movie and I think a lot of it the things that I find complicated about it boil down to the story at its center and the ways in which it chooses to remain faithful and the ways it chooses to depart from that um, especially in 2018 and like why do we need this story told this way in 2018 and I'm not saying that in a dismissive way like I'm actually asking you know like in terms of the guiding principle of the movie like what makes this the story that we need in 2018 told this way and I'm I'm not really sure that the movie knows that but anyway, I keep interrupting Scott. Scott, what did you think of the movie? Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, well, I, uh, yeah, so I think I'm I'm with many of you. You're just thinking, eclipsing him. You're just I, eclipsing his star. I really, He's on the way down. I really loved it in a very uncomplicated way. <laughs> All of it? No, to the to that point, oh, to okay. the point where where he takes her on stage and and she and she goes and sings. I mean, to, that is just like pure movie magic that moment and it's so 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 one of the smarter choices here is uh bradley cooper hiring the the cinematographer matthew libatique uh who uh really kind of gets that moment like it's just it crystallizes it it's like you don't you really don't forget about the mm-hmm. film is the way that not not only the the way the way that moment builds, but just the actual look of her in the spotlight and hitting the registers she hits. It's just such an incredible moment. Um. So, but then the film just goes way, <laughs> it just goes downhill from there for for, for me. I mean, I, I I don't think it goes really d- uh, to the basement. I, I I think it. But then I, I do agree with a lot of the criticisms being made here about how it gets a little bit messy and your feelings about it are not as. Uh, or at least my feelings about it were not as uh, positive towards the, once we got past that that moment and we had to deal with this very strange interaction between the rock and pop worlds. It didn't feel at all connected with the way either world really works now. And then I think the film um, whiffs the ending. The song is terrible, I think. The last, <laughs> the last song just made me cringe and you really don't want it to do that. The only saving grace for me for that closing moment is is when they cut away from it to just the two of them together kind of kind of composing the, the song and work, working together on the by the piano or whatever and getting it together it was a nice little intimate moment and it made uh it kind of redeemed the scene a little bit yeah. for me but i couldn't i could i couldn't help then think of of a film like once which is just like oh man that that, that would have been that that's a really great film about the act of, of two people coming together to create a song but um in any case that, that that was basically that's my basic impression of the film great start you know but once it hits that peak it starts to slide some context for libatique he's he's a He's worked with Spike Lee. He's he's worked with John Favreau, but he's best known for working with Darren Aronofsky. Mm. And yeah, I don't know. I don't remember if I if I missed his name in the credits, opening credits, or if they if his name is not in the opening credits. But like, there's a shot where they're following a character from behind a handheld shot, like on a character's shoulders, like. Why is this shot like a Dardenne Brothers movie? And of course, that's that's kind of a thing that he picked up from the Dardennes. It's kind of a libatique signature as well. He's you know, a very but, interesting uh, guy. He he he, he gets in him, close. He gets in. He, he shoots him a lot. This of this and mother. That, yeah. that that opening sequence of of Jackson playing was it Black Eyes or or whatever you know, like the his his Guitar Hero moment, mm-hmm. like literally the opening scene of the film of him like doing drugs and drinking and then going on stage and, and killing it. Like yeah. that's a very exciting scene from the yeah. moment, like from the jump, just with the with the energy from the crowd, but also just like the way it goes so close up on the guitar pyrotechnics and combined with that song, which I think is one of the better songs of the film. Like Mm -hmm. it just, it comes roaring out of the gate. Like the, the shallow sequence is amazing, 
but I don't want to like make it sound like it doesn't do anything interesting up until that or point. Or the Mavi and Rose scene, uh, yeah. which is great. Right. And then the whole thing in the, in the drag club, oh. all that stuff's great. And, and, it's and like, like two of my favorite queens get like really kind of meaty roles here. Uh, Willem Belly and Shangela are the two speaking drag queens. And oh. I, I love I love them both. It was yeah, very exciting. And it just sort of kind of matter of fact drops you into that world and lets you let you figure out what's going on. You know, like he, like he is. I mean, and that's not a world I know as, as well. I don't see uh, the parking lot's quite nice too. Yeah. Yeah, and that yeah. was for, you know, to, to pick up another online debate. That was what I was like. Wait, I thought we were in New York. <laughs> yeah, people be more unclear where this movie yeah, takes but, place. <laughs> it does the, uh, the open space in that sequence is is a little odd, and so is the idea that just nobody is around at night. Like it suddenly it feels like you're in the middle of like some Midwest podunk town. Yeah, but I mean. I don't know. I mean, I think we're all kind of on the same page where the first half is, is doing something much better than, than the second half. And part of it for me is I, you know, in the 54 version, it doesn't feel like he's making the right choice when he kills himself, but it feels like for that character, this is an inevitability. Like he just out of road and in his, in his own mind. And I never really get that Jackson Maine had gone that far into the darkness and that the one pivotal conversation he has that pushes him over the edge um, I mean, isn't isn't analogous to something in the fifty four version? But I just, I just didn't buy that scene. I, I didn't buy that character. The, those sort of Lady Lady Gaga's alleys, uh, you know, publicist, you know, handler or whatever, mm. basically saying you're no good for her. You may as well go kill yourself or uh, yeah. whatever. It's I just didn't buy that that as a moment that pushes them over the edge. And and I don't know. I, it's, it's rough. Here's one of my big things about this movie. Uh, I feel like one of the reasons that the uh, the first shallow sequence hits us so hard is because it plays out at length. Like the song plays out, the sequence plays out. We get to study his face as he's inviting her on, on stage. We get to study her face as she's making that decision. We get to see it all play out with the crowd. So much of this film is edited in a, a very, very choppy way that to me just says... You you know this part. We don't need to fill in the blanks here. There's the business where she's talking to her handler who's like, oh, you, we, I want you to be a platinum blonde. And she's like, I'm not interested in going blonde. And then like two scenes later, she's a redhead. And I can't tell within the context of the film, was this the compromise between them? Was this something that mm-hmm. she chose? Was this a whole lot of pressure that was put on her and she cracked? Are we meant to see this as her giving in or her like owning her own decisions? There's so much that this film just skips over really, really quickly throughout the entire course of it. And it's very consciously a storytelling choice. And in some places, it works for me because it's like, okay, we don't we don't need to see every place they visit as uh, she like slowly works her way up to fame. Like we don't need to see every step along the way of their relationship. There's a lot of, you know, this part, let's let's get to the next part. But as the emotions get more and more complicated and we're still skipping a lot of that development, we go really, really quickly from, hey, you should kill yourself to, you know what? I'm going to kill myself. Mm. It feels like we're missing some really necessary texture in there. Well, he gives the dog a steak. Yeah. Well, that's, that's another thing. That's, gives the movie a steak, too. What's your point? It's completely implausible that anybody would want to be separated from that dog. Right. It's, it's a great dog. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's Brother Cooper's real dog. Damn, oh, of course really? it is. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, That's another thing. I, I just resent Bradley Cooper for his whole life. I don't like it. <laughs> you, you don't like him having that dog, that yeah, voice? Yeah, just as how you, now he's got a big shot. He's handsome. He's got this movie that people like now, and he's got a nice dog. Scott, how do you deal with criticizing movies when you're constantly looking at insanely pretty people with tons of money and like charmed lives? Yeah, that's why I'm so cranky about everything I see. <laughs> Next, you're going to tell me that house is also his, because, oh, that house. I could have dealt with at least 10 more minutes of just like wandering around that house they have because i loved it i loved yeah. it so much just kind of like that nice la style right yeah that sunroom where they compose together mm. yeah yeah there was there was a moment towards the end where like we we just cut straight from him hanging in the garage to kind of like her moping <laughs> around the house and i'm i was like wouldn't she want to get out of the house and then i'm like oh no it's yeah, it's an amazing a, house yeah and the dog is there <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or, or maybe we're maybe being a little cynical about something really painful and tragic but yeah. i think part of that is uh, that might be a little defensive and it might also just be because you don't feel it as strongly here because it all happens so quickly like his his falling apart his rehab and then then the the failure and, and coming around and, and the suicide like all blitzes so quickly by yeah, I don't want to get into like litigating someone's reasons for suicide, but like getting into maybe connections a, a little early here. But like in the 54 version, Vicky basically says like, I'm not doing any more movies. We're going to focus on, on being a couple and getting better. And so like that is the sacrifice that he is keeping her from making. The sacrifice Ali is making is I'm not going to go on the European leg of my tour and I'm going to work on my second album instead. I, I feel like that is a scenario where compromises could have been made or, or like, you know, people could have like shifted around a little bit, a, a little more, you know, it doesn't feel as finite of, a, of an ultimatum as it does. And that I think kind of contributes to the the sense that it's a more rash decision. I assumed that the second album was a lie and he knew it. It could be. It could be. And, and this kind of like brings up another sort of issue, I think, with this movie, which is that uh, character of Rafi, the smarmy label executive like that's a a bad character for a lot of reasons and i think a lot of this movie's problems kind of like come down to how that character is handled first of all just make it a woman like put any other woman in this in this movie it put put any other woman around Allie. put give her like an advocate first of all make that character an advocate for Allie, not like this like shady character who's you know just out to make money or however the movie like seems to think of him like i want that character to be someone who believes in Allie on her own outside of her connection to Jackson because I think that is like what that character is supposed to be but the movie portrays him as just like a sleaze ball culminating yeah, and I mean, you I should th- just kill well, yourself. He does, he, he does, doesn't he believe that anyway? He, he, he Just by telling uh, Jackson to kill himself or almost yeah. suggesting as much I mean he, he certainly has to have some faith that she can do just fine without it right him. yeah no I mean I, sorry, man, I misspoke like he is an advocate for Allie but I just think the way he's framed is like an evil like he's, he's like kind of filling the same role in terms of characterization as the Libby character mm-hmm. in the 54 film you know like he's kind of well both it's like a synthesis right yeah yeah so like he's kind of like this movie doesn't necessarily have a villain you could argue Jackson is the villain you know but um, I think 
think that character is the closest there is to one. And I think there's a lot of problems that could have been solved if they had maybe been a little, if they had thought outside the box a little more with that character. I think it might have been a a more interesting or complicated movie with a woman advocate in that role. Mm -hmm. But I think it feels way more accurate to me like this. That's true. I I feel like that guy is is very specifically representing the guy that you run into in the the music industry Mm -hmm. who knows everything better than you do, like knows what you should look like and what you should sing and is has to put up with you because of fame after a certain point but like would really prefer that you just you know shut up and look like he tells you to and sounds like he tells you to like everything about that guy felt pretty authentic to the music biz to me it's the guy who says you know what you should sing about butts (laughs) how do you feel about big ones and can you lie (laughs) it's that Joni mitchell line about the the, the star making machinery behind the popular song i mean he's he's kind of like the representative of that type of person okay well then ali's friend played by anthony ramos of hamilton fame and i was very happy to see him here although weird that he doesn't really sing but like maybe that character could be a woman i don't know like i just like i get what you're saying tasha about you know this is reflective of the industry but in terms of this movie i just really wish there had been any other female character of consequence at all and there are like places where there could have been let's talk about the uh the authenticity thing you you brought that up and boy there's a lot to cover there in that jackson is uh doing this kind of like twangy good old boy uh rock country and she's doing this very glitzy pop that requires her to make herself over what did you like i i really really love lady gaga's music mm-hmm. like i'm i'm an addict but i didn't love some of the stuff she was doing here and that saturday night live performance to me just felt like this is here for you to hate it. Ooh, oh, I'll, yeah. uh, I'll be the Tasha here. I like, I like, look what you made me do. Okay. Um, I, and I, and I think like, you know, it, we all call it the butt song, you know, but like, that's a tradition and in, in not just <laughs> in pop music. I will point you to Dolly Parton's. Why'd you come in here looking like that? <laughs> you know, like, like the idea that you can't write a song about being attracted to someone physically and be authentic, you know, like, like, I mean, like Ali still wrote this song and like, you know, the production, you know, might not be your cup of tea but i think presenting it as throwaway pop trash is really unnecessarily dismissive i mean lady gaga's first song was called just dance i mean like but she makes really good music even if it has like this surface of superficiality i guess like that's her thing like i don't know if you guys have actually listened to that song which is actually called why did you do that i had the name wrong um like outside of the little bit we hear of it in the movie but like, I'll say it's a bop. Like, it's a good song. It's very, very produced and pop forward. But I think it is the same kind of song that Just Dance is. So I kind of resent the way it's portrayed as like the bottom, the bottom of the barrel here. But, but so yeah, but you think the film frames it that way for mm-hmm. sure. Oh, for sure. Well, that's the, I mean, that, it that literally was... drives Jackson to drink. <laughs> well, that was <laughs> the, the strange thing to me about the movie, just generally, is I think like why has he made this movie uh, and cast Lady Gaga yes. when, when it's so clear that he has so contempt for pop music? It's a very strange, and, and like in that contempt really shows in the way that he is trying to take away, you know, all of these sort of whatever trappings of who 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 we know Lady Gaga to be and just reveal her to be this pure authentic self who, you know, who she really is, un, undone up 
It's just a very strange thing for the film to to have done. Well, and he discovers her performing in a persona. And, and like that is also like a very big part of the Lady Gaga thing, you know, like performing in different personas. And like she does the Olivia and Rose number, you know, with her, her fake eyebrows and the whole thing. And like the film suggests that she's doing it because she's hiding or because she's mm-hmm. ashamed, like with the whole taking the eyebrow off bull. <laughs> I mean, it's just the straight equivalent of the wiping the makeup yeah. off the face yeah. thing. It's like, guy, you're in a drag club. Like, <laughs> you know, she's singing La Vie and Rose. Of course she's wearing like character makeup. Chill out. Like, I, mm, okay. I mean, I, I, I don't think this is a criticism. It's more of an observation, but there, it, I was, I kept thinking there really is no contemporary analog for Jackson mm-hmm. Maine. I Cooper mean, says Eddie Vedder. Yeah, but no, it, no. <laughs> it doesn't work. I mean, it, you know, the song Maybe It's Time is written by Jason Isabel, who's 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 a great singer-songwriter, but his character's kind of like if Jason Isabel, if Jason Isabel were actually a big star, which he's not. I mean, he's got a solid following. But, I feel like but he's, it's, he's pulling a Springsteen well, thing. No, but not really, though. It's more like this kind of like, it's definitely got this sort of Southern tinge to it. It's almost, if he'd gone out and just made him a country singer, it actually would make more sense. But like this sort of like, Meat and potatoes, singer songwriter. I mean, if we're set in the seventies and this was this yeah. was Bob Seeger or something, it might work. <laughs> you know? yeah. But but it's just not this this figure is I mean, there is no equivalent like a headlining rock star of his age who would get recognized at a drag club. I just there's just not the equivalent of that at all. And 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 I don't think that's really a problem for the film, but I think it kind of contributes to sort of like a little disconnection from the way the music industry actually works. And I almost feel like for all we've talked about of it being critical of, of the pop music, I almost I feel like edging into connections here, but I feel like it's less cynical and less critical of, of the entertainment industry than the 54 version in some ways. It's almost, yeah. I, I feel like Jackson Maine could have had comeback after comeback. And if anything, in 2018, his, his meltdown at the award show uh, would just kind of like, get him in headlines for a while and set, <laughs> yeah. up, set up the next big comeback um, oh yeah i mean one of them there are there are a bunch of i think really inauthentic lines in the 2018 version and the one that landed with the biggest thud for me was just by staying with you she's become a complete joke it's like no a lot of people have watched that clip of him him peeing himself on youtube and laughed at him and she's sticking by him and people are going to consider that romantic. Like there's, there's just no world in which the entire world that loved her is willing to discard her for staying with a man she loves. That's just, that's not a thing. Did, did any of you guys happen to see the vulture piece, uh, uh, yes. how the media would have portrayed <laughs> the events of a star is born? Uh, what, which one was the, which one was the cut? <laughs> The cut was, Jackson Maine is a reminder that our era of powerful women is also an era of sad men peeing their pants. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 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 The New York Post headline is, you're in trouble, mister. Oh, my God. Oh, that's a winner. That's a great feature. You got to see it. I avoided reading it because I hadn't seen the film yet, but uh, that's that's amazing. Well, uh, as you say, we're skirting connections a lot. So uh, let's just just get under that skirt, guys. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Okay. That was was, was was pretty weird. Let's do it. <laughs> that one landed with a thud like yesterday. No, that was skirt. weird. That was weird. <laughs> we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between the 1954 and 2018 version of A Star is Born. Tell me something, boy. Aren't you tired trying to fill that void? 
writing this song the other day. Maybe that could work, like as a chorus or something. I'm off the deep end Watch as I dive in I'll never meet the ground Crash through the Can I tell you a secret? I think you might be a songwriter. But don't worry, I won't tell anybody. But I'm not very good at keeping secrets. <laughs> now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, we talked a bit about the how the musical performances are portrayed, uh, specifically through Matthew Libatique's camera. I wanted to, we kind of glossed by this part, but I kind of wanted to talk about it a little. That camera is all over the place, especially mm-hmm. during Jackson Maine's first performance. It's up under him, like it's it's in front of the guitar, it's behind the, the the guitar, it's looking at him from underneath. Like I love how dynamic that is. And when you look at that by comparison with A Star Is Born and like maybe the the Born in a Trunk sequence, like which is so presentational and and MGM musical, like they're just there's such different presentations in terms of trying to capture how people I think experience music how people experience movie musicals as this sort of like grand lavish presentational thing, but maybe rock music on stage as a much more like immediate and an impulsive kind of thing. I just, I kind of love how both of those films use their cinematography to make you feel the music better. Well, in, in the 2018 Star is Born, it's like, it's live performance for the most part. You know, there is an audience that, that is being fed off of and that is, is being fed. And I, you know, these were like, I think they filmed at, was it Coachella? They filmed at some, uh, yeah, they filmed yeah. A, a music fest, and I think one scene there's like an audience from a Willie Nelson concert uh, that, that's like cut in, but like maybe that was the same one. Even though both of these films are dealing with music performance, it's like two wildly different contexts of musical performance. And I think the way the films individually approach their musical performance fits with that context, you, you know, like movie musical performance is highly staged that's what makes it like that is the the thing of movie musicals and live performance is much more loose and much more in the moment and energetic so i i just i really like the way the the camera styles and editing and everything kind of contribute to like making you feel the type of music performance that is happening on screen i think that like the notion of even shooting a sequence like the one that opens 
the 2018 A Star Is Born wouldn't have even occurred to the yeah. makers of the 1954 A Star Is Born. But then practically speaking, if you're talking about what are the things we want to emphasize in a scene, well, with the 2018 version, you're emphasizing the immediacy of it, the, the rawness of it, um, you know, the you are there live factor with the 1954. I mean, it's really about color and it's about showcasing Judy Garland and everything that she can do. And it just makes you know, the simplest possible framing of that is the sensible way to do it because you already have this spectacular set. You have Judy Garland is going to give you everything you need from a medium long distance. And that's the way you can shoot the sequence and it works great. Kind of to revisit what we talked about in the first half about Garland being a pro and like always hitting the marks. Like I think uh, again, that opening sequence in the 2018 version where it, you know, we, we first see Jackson just like, downing a bunch of inebriants so then we get like this close-up on his, of his fingers on the guitar just like nailing it like they're mm-hmm. you know it, like you're, you're expecting to see him like fall apart in that moment but he doesn't and then the sequence at the grammys later too you know like he falls apart later during yeah. ali's speech but he holds it together during that pretty woman performance that's you my know? favorite s- sequence of the whole second half of the movie is when he's up there performing that it felt so true to me of just like that happens to so many rock stars who have been blitzed like that yeah. or just you know it's just there's a muscle memory involved mm-hmm. too i guess in doing it but just the, the tension of that scene and the in the fact that he does deliver the goods ultimately just that made so much sense to me uh, i appreciated that part and of then it. afterwards he has to ask or oh, are we done like the degree to which he kind of has to be wheeled on and off stage <laughs> and just doesn't realize what's going on is just kind of amazing did you guys think of Crazy Heart during this film? Mm, uh, I, I am now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Should we go back and scrap the first half and pair them? <laughs> oh, there we go. Well, yeah. no, because here's the thing. I, this is sort of going to be the next thing. I This movie, one of the reasons the, the super choppy editing mostly didn't bother me is because I felt this film echoing so many other films. I kept thinking of Crazy Heart and Bad Blake around most of the Bradley Cooper scenes. I uh, kept thinking of Beyond the Lights and wondering if you were thinking of Beyond the Lights. <laughs> oh, yeah during the whole process I did briefly of think of it yeah Allie getting made over gosh there was something else major that um, well I, I also thought about beyond the lights a little bit in terms of the whole authenticity thing because beyond the lights has a little bit of the same hang, oh, sure. uh, hang up about like pop versus authentic music but that's yeah. a tangent we won't well, go to that and it also has kind of the same thing going on about uh you know the glossy famous woman versus the very like laid laid back man who kind of uh, ends up having having an edge of control over her, mm-hmm. which is something else I wanted to discuss in terms of these two movies. A lot of the the feedback and frustration and anger over the 2018 Stars Born comes down to gender dynamics and people mm-hmm. writing about how you know it's this woman like giving up all control of her life to a bunch of men. That is not what I saw on screen. But at the same time, I see where people can get that uncomfortable dynamic with both films because you have this young woman falling under the sway of a charismatic man who kind of tells her, like literally wipes makeup off her face or peels her makeup off of her face, tells her how to dress and how to act and then disapproves when she goes outside it. But I feel like the people that are complaining about that aren't really seeing the degree to which she rejects it and, and comes into her own in both movies. I think that's fair. I mean, I did did the gender dynamics, did the relationships work yeah. for you in these movies? No, like I have I have a lot of, I'm the person that has, has those problems here you're, you, that don't bother you, Tasha. And I kind of already explained a lot of them have to do with like the degree to which their careers and art are intertwined in a way that they are not in the 54 
star is born like they they never work on a film together they're not singing each other's songs but also the romance in both of these movies like i never really buy the romance between jackson and Allie in this 2018 version like I, I believe that he is infatuated with her and I believe that she sees herself through his eyes in a way that she's never felt before and that's extremely intoxicating. But when they first get together, like Jackson passes out, you know, before they can do anything and then they wake up in the middle of the night and have drunken sex, you know, and like that's the beginning of their their beautiful love story. Well, I think and, I felt like it was setting up a tougher depiction of addiction than, yeah. and, than we were actually end up getting or something a little bit more like... Uh, here are the ugly re- ugly realities of what it is to be an alcoholic and, and a drug addict, and it doesn't really follow through with that. Yeah, it, it resolves on this note that is meant to be romantic, yeah. and it does not work for me. It's it's a very bum note for me. And I bought their chemistry together, though. I mean, I, I, I did it too. Yeah, I, I I bought their chemistry together in a non romantic context, like, like as, mm. as a mentor mentee uh, relationship. I felt it a lot more. One of the things the the other movie that I was trying to think of that kept coming up for me was Walk the Line. And mm-hmm. the the relationship between Johnny Cash and, and June there, I mean, both in the sequence was where they're singing together and in just the sense of his, his addiction and his addiction to her specifically. I saw a lot of that same dynamic. And again, I kind of, I may feel like I appreciate this movie more than it deserves because I'm filling in all the blanks with other movies that I've liked. Yeah. That's interesting. And and to bring it back to the 54 version, and I, I wanted to talk a little about Vicky and Norman's relationship there because it... You know, I, I talked a little bit about how the the scenes in the uh, reconstruction like give us a, a little bit more there, but she is the one who says "I love you." You know, she is the one who brings love to the table, and, and he responds. And like, I actually like that more. Like, it, it makes her feel like a more active presence in their relationship than Allie feels in the relationship in the 2018 version. It, this happens distressingly often uh, when you look at new films and old films the old films seem to have more sophisticated and advanced gender dynamics than the new films do and I think that's true of the 54 version as well there's there's kind of a sense of a willingness on um, Norman's part to recede almost literally mm-hmm. from that scene as she as she ascends and and you know and it, it's built in of course that they're not as you say is uh, their careers are not as tied together in um, the fifty four version as they are in the two thousand eighteen movie and I think that's that's to the film's benefit as far as as far as understanding their relationship and and his gen you know generosity towards her which isn't the same as in star is born where where you feel like there's an element of control of him trying to make her into something him recognizing something in her that she doesn't even see in herself and then making it his task to to bring that out i think there's there's more understanding here that julia garland's character is going to be able to to do all this for herself i feel like it's significant that in the 54 version when he wants the studio head to hear her he doesn't haul her to the studio head and say, now you do that. Do you do that thing that you do, mm-hmm. you know, for him, he sets up this elaborate thing where he's pretending to complain about his house and he keeps trying to get the studio head in front of the window and get the window open. And that to me speaks of that generosity that you're talking about. Like he doesn't want to be seen as look what I discovered. Yeah. He, he just kind of wants it to happen quote unquote naturally. 
And it ends up being a lot more charming, I think, than Jackson, like, or telling her, I'm going to go sing your song on stage. and That I arranged for you. Without telling you. And, like, <laughs> wrote some extra verses that. for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's very controlling. Some folks call it a sling blade. Well, and and it- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and some of this might uh, come down to the shift in industry from m- the movie industry to the music industry and, like, movie making is just there's just a lot more people involved and you know music writing is a collaborative medium but in a much more sort of intimate way than than movie making is so i I haven't seen the streisand christopherson version it sounds like like none of us have but that is the one that that shifted it to the music industry so I'm, i'm curious if that element of their relationship and their creative output being so closely linked stems from that version or if it is unique to this. Yeah, with the 54 version, it, it does seem like being having more to do with movies means it's much easier harder for anybody to make art without a huge team of people Mm -hmm. which necessarily dilutes like how much control he can have which kind of feeds into something else i wanted to talk about which is the conflict between art and commerce in both of these movies i mean in both of these movies there's that sense of can you be famous as you are or do you do we have to remake you like we we have an idea of what art looks like and we're not going to let you be famous unless you fit that i i like idea slash ideal i'm not sure which word i want to use there um and i think in spite of that collaborative thing both movies end up coming down very close to the same place in terms of trying to remake a person uh, to fit a like a very, very tight standard of what we think is acceptable and how art gets compromised in the process. Well, and again, like the the shift in industry is interesting here because I like I talked in the first half about the whole, you know, being set in a time when Hollywood was struggling and the studio system was sort of dying, you know, and compromises need to be made. And that setting, I think, allows for a lot of this art versus commerce question to to play out in an interesting way. Uh, the 2018 version, I think Keith, you kind of already like noted this, like it doesn't seem to have a really clear idea of the current modern day music landscape and the compromises that have to be made within that landscape. There's a contextualization missing, I think, in the 2018 version around that art and commerce uh, relationship that is very present in the 54 version. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're charitable, you could you could almost say that Jackson Maine is from a time when authenticity could lead to stardom and Allie is not, but I don't know. There is a parallel too where, where not that she wasn't fully invested in, in her pop music, but there's kind of the Lady Gaga, I'm going to make these pop albums and then I'm going to record an album with Tony Bennett mm-hmm. to kind of step yeah. out and like strip down and, and just be, just do some songs, you know, that's, well, that's I, so I, there, there is that, you know, it's not like this is totally absent from her own narrative either. Yeah, I, I remember I, I reviewed like her very first HBO special, like back at the AV Club. Like it, I think it was it was a Monsters Ball tour, so it was like it was during the Bad Romance era, so it wasn't like right at the beginning, but you know, um, sort of her her peak. And like even there, like it was this big concert 
blowout spectacle but the end like it ends with 10 minutes of just gaga at the piano not in front of an audience like in the rehearsal hall just like just her and the piano just singing the shit out of some shit like you know like she is just like that side of her persona has always been part of lady gaga that you know like she has always presented herself as an artist and like someone who embraces artifice as part of her artistry but can also knows when to drop that artifice and, you know, and when, how to make it count. When she'd appear on SNL, she'd do some fairly, you know, spare performances mm-hmm. as well, which was kind of, kind of surprising. And, and also, it gave you another side of her that you wouldn't get just seeing the videos. Uh, her her SNL performance here, which I, I kind of dissed, I struggle with it because it does feel like a Lady Gaga performance. Like, I feel like we're supposed to feel it's, it's inauthentic and like is changing her and is like an, a compromised art because she's wearing so little clothing and because she's sexualizing herself by singing about asses and uh, like constantly pumping her hips. And at the same time, like these are all things that Lady mm-hmm. Gaga does as central parts of her performance. So, I mean, I just don't like the song. I love Just Dance. I think it's a banger. This one didn't land for me. It just, it felt really repetitive. And all of the other things that kind of felt like were turnoffs, I kind of struggled with because it's like, well, I mean, this is her. This is her performing outlandish costumes and like and bearing her body and being sexualized and repetitive rhythms. This is all very Lady Gaga stuff. And then you turn around and you look at uh, Judy Garland in her in her movie and the kind of thing that she's doing where she like she looks off just above the horizon and belts like crazy Mm -hmm. is also just very much a part of like her performance, her persona, the image that she had from at least a wizard of Oz on. I wonder if the new star is born would have been better off if Lady Gaga's character were completely abstracted from who we think of her now. If if she were an aspiring singer songwriter rather than someone who's maybe entering into this place where she's suggestive of the actual pop phenomenon that she is. Um, I mean, again, this is I don't like to make movies for for people, uh, so I usually don't make suggestions like that. But the film just makes such a mess of that whole of the whole. <laughs> musical well, it's, industry it's the, i can't i it's so hard to sort out and there seems to be such uh, you know the issue of, of authenticity is just it hurts the film I, in my opinion it's like kind of caught up in the songwriting performance divide i think in terms of the whole authenticity debate like it considers songwriting to be like the authentic act you know like that like when she and jackson first meet he's like you want to be a songwriter and she's like yeah like like it's about writing the songs and then performance is secondary i mean we see that how jackson has like lost his interest in performance you, you know or, or he considers it a, a necessary evil or, or something at this point like he's very he's very going through the motions and like ali is investing herself in her performance like we see her working at it we see her learning to dance and, and, and you know and like and again that ties into the lady gaga persona like she is a songwriter she writes her songs she can play the hell out of the piano you know she does some arrangements that i'm i'm led to believe but she is a performer, you know, and like those are two sides of the same artist coin with her. And it seems like this movie doesn't necessarily consider them that. It seems to see them as separate entities. I don't know. I I think that's a fascinating point that I had not considered. But like looking at it now, I, I kind of feel like he's so obsessed with, you know, your voice and what do you have to say? Like he, he brings that up over and over. It's the kind of at the core between him and like the fight with his brother. Like I stole your voice because you didn't have anything to say. 
Uh, the question there is, he mean does he mean voice as in your vocals or no, voice no. as in your songwriting? I think he means voice as in your songwriting, <laughs> and I think that's that's the core of the the thing that you just got to yeah. that that I'd missed, where he doesn't care about performance because singing the same song over and over isn't really delivering his message. What's delivering his message is like writing the song and, and putting it out there for the first time in the world. Whereas she does seem really invested in performance, and maybe she needs the costumes and the hair color and like all of the trappings because she cares about performance more than he does and he only seems to care about performance when she's there at this point i mean it's a performance that hooks him like she's not singing her own song at, at the club you know she's performing a character and wait what <laughs> <laughs> i know i know i don't know it's just another thing that i think this 2018 version is a little blurry on in ways that the 54 version is not quite so blurry this is a just a little sidetrack i just realized i don't want to get through this whole podcast without mentioning how awesome sam elliott is <laughs> it's not oh a connection God. there there's no, an- no. analogous He's character so but good. i i i like just the, the bradley cooper's dedication to just by hook or by crook casting sam elliott as his brother <laughs> even if even if they have to go through a tortured explanation to figure out why they, they're so and make a lot of jokes about father-son duos right i just you know just he had the idea has to be Sam Elliott. Let's, he'll let's, he'll let's, work let's all work that it. in for Sam Elliott and his character, but he won't give his leading lady a backstory other than her dad. It's his first <laughs> film. He's work, he's still working things out. What was with her dad's like team of buddies who are always in the house? Oh, they're they're drivers. They're chauffeurs. I don't. I think the dice man's pretty good in this one. Yeah, me yeah. Too. I mean, I, they're fun. Don't get me wrong. Like, I like the interaction. I like the tone, but. He just he travels with an entourage at all times. Like it's six in the morning and he's hanging around his house with these guys. That's where they go when they're off shift. Yeah, these are blue collar buddies. I like it. I mean, this. I I guess it just seems like a really specific weird choice. Honestly, is you know, for a movie with Andrew Dice Clay third build, it's as good as it possibly (laughs) could be. (laughs) You could never expect a movie this good with with him as third build. Well, we have a bunch more connections written down, uh, including the difference between selling out and finding your own voice and how how these movies handle suicide. But we kind of covered those in passing. So I kind of feel like the, the way to close is just to come back to the question of like, why, why this story? Why do we love this story so much? And I think above all, the thing that surprises me looking at, at each of these versions is why it's always an older man and a younger woman. Usually when you remake a movie over and over and over generationally, you find something in that to swap around. You uh, put somebody in who's a person of color or you swap the genders, or you swap the ages, you play with the dynamic. But every time the story is told, it's that same age gender dynamic. Why is that so important to the story? Why do we want to hear the story over and over? I'll let others dig into that part, but I think it's one of the few stories that really kind of, you know, kind of does something that we see, which is stars rise and fade. And, you know, like, why don't we see X as much anymore is a question that, that's led to many a clickbait article on the Internet. But uh, uh, but also just kind of like, you know, there's there's this kind of like that people have their moment and then they pass and it doesn't really get explored that often in, in, in other other films. And, and it's, you know, this is this is the one one outline we have to talk about that particular phenomenon. Um, and I'll let others talk about why older man, and younger woman. I mean, 
I don't have a good answer for that. And it really is kind of like at the heart of my frustration, <laughs> you know, when I say like, why did this movie need to be made in 2018 this way? Like it, it kind of comes down to that, like the the lack of evolving this, this storyline in any meaningful way or this, this dynamic, the central dynamic in any meaningful way. And I don't have a good answer other than laziness or like, <laughs> or like being like so enamored of this story that has been told like memorably many times and like just wanting to retell it in a different way without like fiddling with with it too much but that just kind of seems cowardly to me what you've said tasha about how it highlights the the male gatekeeping aspect of the entertainment industry like gives it a little more sense to me but it doesn't mean like that i'm happy to to see it presented (laughs) again in 2018 I mean, a couple of things why you would do it. I mean, one I think is is to showcase the the woman. I mean, to showcase the talents of a specific. But it's not her story. It's always the guy's story, right? But maybe you don't necessarily like the mechanism by which this is done. But the effect of it is ultimately to give you hugely memorable uh, showcases for Lady Gaga, for Judy Garland, pre- presumably for Barbara Streisand. I haven't seen that version. I mean, this is this story is a, a strong mechanism to do that. So, so there's that reason, and then too, it's just you know, as melodrama, it can be if done done well, quite heartbreaking. You know, it's a story about addiction and self sacrifice and, and love and, and people sort of clinging to each other and clinging to fame. I mean, the dramatic elements are so stormy and, and um, powerful. And, uh, you know, if they're rendered properly, then this, I think the story would work great. I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't necessarily think that Bradley Cooper sticks the landing, certainly here, but, but I think you can make a good movie out of it. And they're fascinating just to, to watch just in, in, in terms of being a reflection of the period in which they were made. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, we had a 30s version. 50s version, 70s version. Where's our 90s version? What happened? I think this was supposed to be the 90s yeah. version. I think I think at one point Clint Eastwood was going to direct it in the 90s, and and um, you know, it stayed with the Warner Brothers, and you know, the, he has a long relationship with the Warner Brothers. Now Bradley Cooper kind of has a relationship with the Warner Brothers, so that's kind of where um, our pal Sam Adams has a uh, piece over at Slate. Uh, called A Star is Born Makes a Romance of Rock's Most Damaging Myths. And it's all about the the film's, uh, what he uh, says is the film's uh, rockist tendencies. But he ends with the note that a popular online parlor game involves casting the version of A Star is Born that should have arrived in the 1990s. Hmm. But especially given the length of time that the current version has been in the works, you could make a strong case that this is the 1990s version, only two decades too late. The division between rock authenticity and pop artifice feels like a holdover from a time where selling out was considered an unpardonable sin rather than a fact of life when lip syncing was a betrayal and not a spectator sport. Damn, that's that's true. <laughs> Stupid Sam Adams. That's so good. He's, good absolutely, old Sam he's Adams. absolutely right. I I I should know that. I, there was a, there was a period of time where I was like suspicious of anybody who was on a major label. Mm-hmm. You know, if you made that jump from an indie to a major label, it was like I didn't I didn't want anything to do with that record. You know that that mattered so much more than it does now. Nobody now nobody cares. Well, Sam has done it. He's, Sam did he's it. He's cracked it. it wide open. He does. He's good. You should he's stop good. listening to this podcast and spend all your time reading Sam because because uh, he's so right. But quick, 90s, 90s Star is Born. Who's in it? The woman? Yeah. Celine Dion. <laughs> Oh my god! No, it'd have to be like Mariah Carey, right? Oh yeah, like, uh, but but then but then you get into a whole like R and B like milieu, you know, which would be interesting. But but yeah. it would be mix it up, like yeah. I said. Paula Abdul. <laughs> no. <laughs> Who would be the right age in the nineties? 
what's the name of that cartoon uh, cat that she danced with? Yeah. In that video? <laughs> <laughs> cat cat? <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it already exists. And it's, it's the video for Opposites Attract. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, there's your 90s stars born right there. It only takes three minutes to watch. You can find it on YouTube. So, someone write in and, and figure out who goes with Mariah Carey. I think Mariah, Mariah Carey is right. I think she's the right to slot it in for the 90s, but I'm trying to think who the who the dude would be. She had her thing, though. What was that? Glitter. Oh, yeah, glitter. glitter. No, I'm not saying she'd be. I think she's a good actress. I don't think she's good, but uh, you know, you know, good in the films I've seen her in. But I do think oh, that precious. In terms, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, I don't think she's good in, in her star turn and yeah. in, in, in glitter. But I, I do think that sort of like the big star is doing something new at that point in time. It's you know, it's equivalent. Well, failing casting MC Scat Cat in that remake, uh, you're going to have to tell us, listeners, who you want in that role. The 1954 A Star is Born is currently available to stream on Amazon, Filmstruck, and the usual rental services. It's also available on DVD and Blu-ray. The 2018 version is probably currently still playing at a theater near you. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, our superstar. <laughs> Genevieve, our rising star. Genevieve, you're going to take over the entire industry and we're going to go jump in Lake Michigan. What in the film world? This is a lot of pressure. I don't know if I can handle it. Uh, no, we're, we all have confidence that you can. Just take off those fake eyebrows. But my nose. What my are nose. you thinking? <laughs> Uh, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Uh, well, I, I kind of already teased in the first half, but I did go back and watch What Price Hollywood, the 1932 George Cukor film that is sort of the original blueprint for A Star is Born. And as Tasha noted in the keynote for the first episode, uh, the similarities were so strong that Cukor uh, declined the opportunity to direct the 1937 film because it was too similar. But there are also some key differences uh, in What Price Hollywood. Chief among them is that it foregoes a romantic relationship between the ascendant star Mary Evans, played by Constance Bennett, and Maximilian Carey, the alcoholic film director who discovers her, played by Lowell Sherman. Um, there is a central romance, but it's between Bennett's character and a third party, a polo player, played by Neil Hamilton. Their relationship is plagued by some of the same issues of jealousy and career demands that we see in uh, future Stars Born stories. But I really like that What Price Hollywood has Mary's career a little less tangled up in her marriage. And the relationship between her and Max is predicated pretty exclusively on him recognizing and appreciating her talent without any overt romantic leanings. The other interesting element of this one in comparison to Cooper's later Stars Born is that it takes place at the height of the studio system. So the way it engages with that element of movie stardom is notably different. And I also just want to highlight what a joy Constance Bennett is in this film. Um, she's just warm and funny and glowing. And she brings across this element of Mary where she is really active in pursuing her own stardom. Uh, like we see her working for it. It's not just thrust upon her the way it, it can seem like it is in later Stars Borns. So yeah, some really interesting comparisons and contrasts going on here. Uh, it's the same director, roughly the same story as the 54 version, but ultimately a very different movie. It's not a musical. It's black and white. Uh, it's only 88 minutes long, <laughs> um, and it is on Filmstruck. Uh, you can watch it there, along with all the other Stars Borns. They're all there. Um, and I think there are also some DVD copies of What Price Hollywood out there. You can probably find them at your local library and whatnot. So... Like I said, it's short and it's super interesting, and I would definitely recommend you check out What Price Hollywood. Keith, what about you? I'm going to recommend a little movie that's making the rounds now um, that is 
Uh, not going to blow you away in terms of inventing a new story that's never been told before, but it tells it very well. It's called uh, What They Had. I played uh, Sundance earlier this year. It's just a very nicely done uh, family drama starring Hilary Swank and Michael Shannon and Robert Forster and Blythe Danner and Tyser Formiga. I can tell you, you can tell you right there. It's it's a uh, pretty 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 stacked cast. There, Elizabeth Chomko is, a, I believe, a first time writer director, and the story is is of Hilary Swank's character is a Los Angelino who returns to uh, our beloved Chicago uh, in the in the winter uh, to deal with the fact that her mother, played by Blythe Danner, needs care, as has a uh, dementia and needs to be put in a situation where she can't hurt herself and disappear in the middle of the night as, as she's been doing. And her father, played by Robert Forster, just does not want to face up to this. And it plays out as very real. And there's a little bit of a faint about halfway through a movie where you realize it is that story, but it's also the story of her character and the meaning of the title only really kind of becomes clear at the end of the movie. And it's, it's, it's all just very well done. I mean, it's, you know, everyone in the cast is really solid. Um, it doesn't resort to any cliches. Uh, sentimentality is, is, is zero uh, in terms of dealing with this. And, uh, you know, it's got some of my favorite people in it. Robert Forster. Come on, Robert Forster. How oh, big yeah. is Robert Forster? And, and he, you know, he's been since Jackie Brown, he's been working solidly. But there's, you know, and he, he, it's rare that he gets like a really good standout role. There's Descendants and there's this. And, and, and he just he just tears it up in this one. Everyone's good. I mean, you don't really see, I don't think you see Hillary Swank enough, actually, and I think she's she's quite good in it. Yeah, as it's well. very strange for somebody who won two Oscars. Yeah, you don't see as much as you do, as you should of her. She's great, and it's a good Chicago movie too. So yeah, that's my recommendation. Mm. What they had, it's it's uh, art houses now, and I'm not sure when it's going to be on VOD, but but look for it when you get when you get a chance. Tasha, how about you? Well, I'm going to bring up a film that I really wanted a studio for the podcast, and it's just not going to work out uh, because we really couldn't find a good pairing for it um, for some very good reasons. It is a Joseph Kahn movie, Bodied. I believe I saw it at either South by Southwest or uh, Sundance. I can't remember which. It was a long time ago, but I walked out of it with my mouth hanging open. <laughs> it is, take a look at Metacritic. Virtually every quote about this movie uh, from a critic uses the word provocation. It is an extremely uh, provocation-laden film. It is specifically about a white graduate student who is fascinated with battle rap, uh, which is very, very heavily a, a black art form. And as he starts to get into the world, he becomes a battle rapper. Uh, and in in the way of so many of these, uh, you know, outsider comes into a scene kind of films, he starts eclipsing people who are part of the world. It is... Uh, racially queasy in a lot of ways, but it is also very aware of that, and it is very confrontational about it. It's it's part of a whole wave of films that I saw at festivals at that time that do not shy away from difficult questions about race, about authenticity, about cultural appropriation, about appropriateness, about whose voice matters and who is allowed to tell stories about who is allowed to be present and what they're allowed to say. Um, the director, Joseph Kahn, uh, who also co-wrote the script, is primarily known for music videos, but he's also an extremely uh, outspoken guy who's gotten himself in a lot of trouble in the music world uh, for some of his opinions. He does not have much of a filter. Uh, Scott, I believe you just interviewed him for Vulture? I did. And that is 
entirely on display. It was a very, it was a wild ride. Thirty-five minutes with <laughs> Joseph Kahn <laughs> was a is a wild ride. I mean, he is a free speech absolutist. He, he's somebody who really just believes that everybody should just have their be throwing opinions around, and we should all be able to kind of absorb it and handle it. And I think he sees battle rap as this arena where all that can be, where everything can be just spilled out on the floor and we can grapple with these issues and still come away with you know, being respectful of each other. Um, it's an interesting movie, I think, because it, it feels like the work of a, of a free speech absolutist, but also it does at least recognize that there are points where words matter and, and, and language hurts and, and um, you can cross lines. I mean, at least it, it does that favor. It doesn't go so far as to say nothing, none of this matters. It does say it matters, but uh, it's an interesting movie and that's it, a lot of fun. I'm kind of stealing the the opportunity to hear you talk about it since we're not gonna we're not gonna take it up here. <laughs> the reason I wanted to take it up here is because I I still don't entirely know how I feel about it. It is directed with so much verve and energy and uh, creativity. It like he takes a music video director's approach uh, to creatively staging things, to putting words on screen, uh, to visualizing the thought process in interesting ways. It's a very energetic an unusual film both visually and uh, in in I think the braveness of the story it tells uh, ultimately I'm not sure I agree with a lot of the conclusions it draws but mm. uh, I will fight f- probably not to my death I will fight at least to the point of a broken limb or so for his right to express these opinions and get people talking about them and I'm I'm dying to know what people are going to think of it. It was picked up uh out of its its festival run by YouTube Red. So it's going to be in theaters on November 2nd and then it'll be on VOD everywhere. Neon is the theatrical distributor. The, oh, they Yeah, they have it. Yeah. yeah, when when YouTube first picked it up, uh I mean it was many many months ago and they've been going through this long process of what's distribution going to mm-hmm. look like. Um so yeah, Neon's putting it in theaters and then it'll be on VOD everywhere on November 28th. Uh, that is Joseph Kahn's Bodied. Yeah. I'm hoping to talk to him about that film in a couple of days myself. Oh, are you? Oh, cool. Will, yeah, no, will... he, he is, It is a lively conversation. And I, I think there's, you know, I mean, keep, this won the audience award at, at TIFF. I mean, so, and, so, and, so, and so a fantastic it, fest, too. Right. I mean, I think, there, I think that there's, there's a sense of almost elation watching it because it just feels very freeing to kind of just have everything out on the table like it does uh one one thing i don't think either of you mentioned is eminem's involvement do you have any perception of how involved he was or is he just like a, a name a, a vanity credit here or I don't yeah. think so- it's certainly hearing you describe it it certainly sounds like something that is definitely uh tied up in some of things that might interest Eminem. So. Yeah. I mean, certainly I would assume some involvement, definitely some interest. Uh, he's got a producer credit. I don't, I don't know what okay. his day-to-day was. Just yeah, my feeling it. is like it was it was like more, more like an Eminem Presents thing, but okay. but he's certainly the spiritual godfather of the film in certain respects because there's so many connections between. In fact, when I asked when I asked, you know, when Joe and I were hanging out after the <laughs> after the thing, I, I actually asked him because we weren't sh- certain about our next pairing, and I was and I told him about the show and asked him what he thought it would pair well with, and he he said he said unambiguously eight, eight miles. So uh, Eminem was certainly on his mind, which is a pairing that we discussed. It's just we we had the question of do we want to spend an hour discussing what a a burning classic eight mile is? <laughs> exactly, it's fine. It, I think that's it's a film fine. that we all liked fine exactly. at the time we just don't necessarily need, exactly. need to spend an hour but praising it but yeah oh, i think spaghetti. It's, movies worth seeking out i think bodied is a much more like exciting and thrilling and without question terrifying film Definitely. scott 
what do you have um so i could sit here <laughs> and recommend you know some some a film like monrovia indiana by uh, frederick wisen which is a very fine movie but instead i'm gonna, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna I'm gonna i'm gonna talk about a film that uh uh, surprised me a film that that i that in, in principle i i absolutely thought was, was a terrible terrible idea to do this film and that uh surprised me by how much i enjoyed it which is uh the second mama mia film uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Uh, uh, it's called it's called mama mia here we go again and um i'd seen both the jukebox musical uh when it came here to chicago and then the, the feature film and the film with Meryl Streep kind of struck me as uh, it came at a time when there seemed to be this idea that you could just, you could take every, all the choreography and staging from this hugely successful play and just make a movie out of that stuff. Like movies like the producers and hairspray and this and mama me. And I felt like that approach was so flat visually and so deadening and so charmless to me, even though even though there's compensatory elements to the first Mamma Mia that make it pretty watchable. This, I think, is so much better in, in every respect. It's very much staged for the screen. There's a lot of variety in, in the staging. And I think there's a wonderful sort of like pas de deux between timelines here because you're dealing with you know you're dealing with you maybe the only critic in the country who used the phrase pas de deux to refer to but something really that happens in Mamma I mean, Mia. Really, really you have because you have this, this this flashback to Meryl Streep's character as a, as a young woman played by Lily James as she's meeting all of these suitors and getting on this enchanting Greek island off the coast of, of Greece um, and, and so you get all of that backstory in one on one timeline and then and then the other timeline you know her daughter played by Amanda Seyfried is trying to reopen this hotel and and getting ready and all these all these characters we know from the first film are coming and we go back and forth and then when they intertwine it's just so elegant and well thought through i find it very satisfying and, and entertaining and just is pretty much as good as i think a movie like this could be so scott i got your back on this actually it's good yeah it's good it's good for a couple other reasons too it's the, well the main thing is like you know you're right the musical number to stage for people who like have seen movie musicals yes, before it helped um but also um i think having going a little deeper into the abba catalog where you're just not like oh here's this song you mm-hmm. know but also that ending is incredibly moving. It, it is. I like this movie. It's like, wait, this movie's really getting to me. I didn't know. <laughs> I know, I know what, that was going to happen when no, I saw Mamma Mia. Here we go. Again. No, I mean, I mean, I just, I did not think. I thought you've got to be kidding me. They, they, how many Abba songs can there be that they could possibly <laughs> patch together for the sequel? And it just, it, the thing works. I gotta say, hey, Lily James is really charming too. She's terrific. Yeah. yeah. What, what do y'all think of it? <laughs> Have you I, seen I it? I haven't seen it. I and I, I kind of want to. I suspect it's going to be one of those films that I'm like. Uh, I feel embarrassed to be here, and then I love. What was, mm. what was the thing that we just saw together in the theater? Oh, Crazy Rich Asians. Mm. When we had that, Genevieve and I both had that experience afterwards of kind of side eyeing. Did did you did you love that? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of feel like it's going to be that, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah, I um, my good friend Oliver Sava, who we all know is a huge huge ABBA fan, and was talking about this movie for months months leading <laughs> up to it like he would just send me the clip of a uh, kiss the teacher or, mm-hmm. yeah, you know? yeah yeah so which actually makes no sense in the context yeah, of yeah. the movie so his like his insistence that this was going to be the greatest movie of all time uh, i think like maybe prejudiced me <laughs> against it like it had the opposite effect he intended mm. and i kind of avoided it based on that but i 
I will catch up with it soon, and I'm sure Oliver will happily do so. <laughs> watch it with me. <laughs> I, I was just I was so surprised by it. I I was uh, by its elegance and by its style, and yeah, I, I mean, don't do it again. This is enough. This is enough. <laughs> no, we don't need a third, probably. We but don't need mommy. But, but I mean, if here we go about, again. But, still you know, I mean, you, you approach these things with certain expectations, and and sometimes that's why you go to the. That's why you actually watch the movies because they can surprise you by by uh, exceeding them. Well, that's awesome. that's about it for this edition of the next picture show our next pairing will come out november 13th and 20th Genevieve, this is your last chance for enduring viral fame before you have to pass somebody else up the fame ladder and go into the west and still remain genevieve we have dyed your hair we have your background dancers ready what is on the docket next for our next episodes we'll look at two different sorts of lost movies and the different ways in which they have returned we'll be mixing up the format a little bit to do so however for part one our classic movie will also technically be a new movie Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind, unfinished at the time of the director's death, shot between the years 1970 and 1976, but left unedited for a variety of reasons. Now, with an edit reconstructed from Welles' notes and a partial rough cut, it's making a long overdue premiere on Netflix. Then in part two, we'll be pairing it with another resurfaced movie, albeit one less complete even than Welles. Shirkers, also on Netflix, is a documentary about the making of a 1992 film also called Shirkers, more or less. The debut feature of Sandy Tan, the new documentary revisits the time she and her friends in Singapore made a road movie under the guidance of a mysterious American benefactor, only to watch the project fall apart for reasons no one ever understood. It's an attempt to unearth the mysteries of her own past and, like the other side of the wind, an exploration of what drives the impulse to make movies in the first place. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Two Stars Are Born and anything (laughs) else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith? Oh, I'm all over the place. Uh, you can find me. I've got it. I recently had pieces of pieces in Vulture and, and the, um, the Verge by the time this comes out and Slate and Rolling Stone and The Ringer. I got a big piece uh, by the time this comes out. There'll be a big piece in The Ringer about uh, Full Moon Studios and their delightful direct-to-video lineup. You can find me on Twitter at kphips3000. I collect my clips occasionally. I got to update it soon at keithphips.com. <laughs> Scott? Oh, okay. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, you can find my work at the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Vulture, um, other NPR, other fine publications. I have uh, an interview with uh, Joseph Kahn that uh, in in Vulture, and then I and I made my debut uh, at, on on the Ringer with a big feature on Jessica Harper, uh, who is one of my who has one of my favorite acting careers. She was in Suspiria and Phantom of the Paradise and Safe and you know stardust memories and a bunch of other amazing movies so um so look look for that genevieve well by the time you hear this uh, i will have moved on from my position at vox.com and to vulture.com <gasps> where i'm the new deputy tv editor yes i have gone over to the dark side <laughs> um but i will still be getting my film criticism on here uh, at the next picture show but yes you will soon be able to find my work editing People like Scott and Keith at Vulture.com. Tasha. I am still the film and TV editor at The Verge, and you can find my work over there. And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. 
You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, blah, 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 you're not listening anymore. But honestly, <laughs> Apple Podcast subscriptions are such an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. Spotify, too. You can subscribe there. Sure. Why not? <laughs> subscribe. Subscribe. Rate like, us everywhere. Comment. What about Stitcher? I don't know if they have subscription. You can definitely uh, comment. But you can listen to us, us there. there. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. You know, whatever, whatever floats your boat. The point is, we always want more people to find the show. And the best way to do that is to rise up in the ranks of the podcatchers where you find us. Every thumbs up, help us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. And thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space in her home base. Genevieve Coxie's apartment. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Just so all-